everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 303, the Sean Levy interview. Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. Now, Phoenix had quite a historic win, and the Suns are now into the NBA championship for the first time since 93, but I think the real party was in England. So I'm going to let you guys just let it all out, let the tears run down, go for it. For a moment, I honestly thought you were going to start with the Phoenix Suns as opposed to the England-Germany <laughs> game. I was like, wow. Uh, pretty special moment, right? I, I mean, it was nervous. It was a really, really tense performance. Um, but yeah, wow. That was something pretty special to kind of live through and be a part of. It was so euphoric and it was great. don't know what you thought, Eddie, over in Paris. Yeah, I mean, look, it was England's best performance of the tournament so far. I think they rode their luck a little bit, right? Like the Muller miss was a big, big moment. Everything could have changed just if he puts that away. And I also think instantly I felt as soon as he missed that, it was like, oh, this is, it's going to be their day. Like you've, it's suddenly that was so different to the kind of England Germany matches in the past. But still maybe a little bit too cautious at times. Second half, kind of particularly after Grealish came on, they actually started to get the ball. Grealish turns with the ball and runs at, at the opposition. So that just changes the way that midfield works. So that's my only little bit con- of concern as they play against more defensive teams is they're in a situation where there is a separation between those three attacking players and the rest of the team. And they need someone to connect that. But it's a great performance. I don't want to pick holes in... You know, what was just a very, very enjoyable evening. There's only one question I have to ask, though, which is, I'm not going to say right now England are definitely going to win. I'll be very disappointed if they don't go on to make the final. But did that night and that experience, in a way, does it almost make you, and I know there's, we're going to have listeners now who are going to hear this American-sounding guy ask this question and think I'm really annoying, but isn't it better if England never win a major tournament? Because aren't nights like that more special because they don't win? I mean, I kind of feel like I need to know. It, you can't predict it, right? Because I, I feel like I would need to know what it's like to win in sure, order to understand it's, it's, if it's it It's this weird th- trade-off, right? So are you trading mm. you know, three amazing weeks or four amazing weeks if it's the World Cup and one exceptionally euphoric day, night when they win for a lifetime of, yeah, I've seen it. Hope. You know, whereas this is the every time, this is going to, like the, it's football coming, football's coming home will not be as meaningful if as soon as they win a, a major tournament. Then it will actually be, then it switches from the slightly ironic, overly optimistic, kind of in funny side of it to we're France and we're just arrogant and annoying. Yeah, I think you're allowed to win every so often and still feel glorious in those nights. But I also feel the international landscape is so competitive that it would, it, it will be hard to be a team that goes out and wins world cup after world cup after Euro. 
I mean, I I see it here, for example. I don't think French fans, they loved it when they won the World Cup. But, you know, if you're my age and you're French, you've seen them win two World Cups and a Euros and make it to the final of the Euros and lose in a final of a World Cup. So all of you know, that's in the span of 25 years. And in that case, honestly, I don't think they could understand the French people watching the emotional reaction to winning a last 16 match as... Because their processing of it is, but you're you're good. Like, you were favored in that match. You were one of the pre-tournament favorites to win. You were playing at home. Germany really aren't that great. And you won 2-0 like, decently impressively, but it wasn't anything. It wasn't some spectacular performance that you have to just be in awe of. And you're all treating it as if you've won the World Cup. And... Again, I want to see England win. I'm not going to say I'm sitting here hoping they lose so I can keep this going, but there is that part of me that yeah. thinks. Now, I will say winning the Euros, you'll still be able to then apply that to the World Cup. So it's kind of, this is this is the stepbrother of, right, the, of the major tournaments. Yeah. I mean, for me, look, I understand what you're saying. I, I think the thing with England that not other international countries get is I think that we define a lot of our footballing rivalries by like the hurt that the other team has given us. So like Germany, I'm not talking about like global conflicts, just football. Germany have caused us since 1966, a ton of heartbreak in terms of exits, penalty defeats, everything. And you even look at other ones like Argentina are exactly the same thing. Again, conflict aside. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're kind of, you are burying <laughs> the lead But it still here. is There's... like, it is like the, it is like the Maradona hand of God. It's numerous yeah. exits. It's the famous Becker moment. And even recently with like Croatia, there's a rivalry developing because of the way they dumped us out of Euro qualifying, the World Cup semi-final. I think England defines its rivalries by her. And that feeds into your point is like the elation and that moment where you just overcome 80 years or whatever it is of not beating Germany is such a euphoric moment where you've never seen it in your lifetime. There's people that haven't seen it in, you know, that that's 70 years now and they haven't seen it. So for me, I understand what you're saying. I just think I need to see us win something. And I think this is our chance. Like this is, I, I'm not saying you're agreeing. I'm just, I'm just agree, doing the calculations in my you. head. Am I trading this summer? for enjoying international tournaments less in the future. The anticipation, I'll put it this way, if England win the Euros this year and then say, just let's go full hog, they they win the World Cup next time around, then there's no way on earth I'd be that excited about England playing a quarterfinal against Ukraine. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like that. This match is only exciting. On paper, it's not great. This match is only exciting because it is well, we might win the Euros, and this is the path. And otherwise, like the French did, a little bit playing the Swiss, which might have been part of the downfall, but for them it was very much, okay, let's look one step further because who cares about this one? It's going to come down to when we play Belgium. You know, that's what they were all talking about. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, being a Yankees fan when I was growing up in that golden era, you know, I had that same feeling where you just expect them to win the World Series every year. But I, I have to believe that England supporters have a very short-term memory. If, any, if, if I can take anything from the way they rip into a player from match to match, I can only imagine they have a, enough of a short-term memory that if, if, you, if England win the World Cup, 
and then lose the next euro, it will already be back almost to this. We're terrible. We're the worst. We can never win anything within one, I think within one cycle. I think if they win this euros and then they don't win anything again for a while, the thing that will just be dismissed of the easy run is the reason why they want. I think we'll both ex- find a way to pick a hole in it. externally and internally. I think it'll be easy. There'll be like a little bit of an asterisk by this championship. And then also, even as an England fan, you'd think, yeah, okay, so we beat Germany and then maybe we're going to beat a good team in the final. But if we didn't, if we don't play France, well, we obviously won't. And if we don't play Belgium in the final, which given their injury problems looks less and less likely, then it's in a scenario where you kind of feel like, well, we didn't play the two best teams in Europe and we won the European championships. So I think it's an English way of doing it, right? Because I in no way or shape or form remember France's run-in, Germany's run-in, Spain's run-ins. Like, I, I don't do. remember them anymore. I just remember their... There, there are people out there who do. The victories, the penalty misses. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I, I remember, like, Italy's penalty win or something like that. I just remember the moment they won. I remember um, England losing to Iceland and then France absolutely demolishing them in the following round. I remember yeah. that pretty well. I remember that, yeah. That's... I think that's more for pain on my part. <laughs> but I think I well, have maybe. to, I, I have to offer a public apology though, because I one of the best performers in that match was was Luke Shaw. Now I think in part that was down to the fact that uh, the shift <laughs> you from him out, possibly <laughs> he called you out. Yeah, but hold on, I think part of it was the shift from the four four two to the three five two, which just freed him to be a little bit more involved going forward and there was more responsibility on the wing backs to do more going forward so i do think that was a little bit that ass moving but (laughs) luke shaw might not have listened to this podcast but yaya torre almost certainly does because subsequently he came out with a quote not about luke shaw but this is his quote it has almost become a joke how big eden hazard's bum is but it is very important to how he plays football. When the ball when the ball arrives, Hazard feels the opponent and uses his butt as the last moment to block him. It pushes him back like a punch. <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird observation. <laughs> so, look, me, Yaya, we're just we're just watching football, staring at asses, and assessing player performances. Yeah, what a weekend. <laughs> But yeah, um, you're right about the Grealish moment as well, going back to it. Like in that 20 minutes, because he runs at players, I think he incentivizes everyone else to do the same thing because you never saw more attacking intent in that game from people like Shaw and Sterling. Even Kane had the ball more in that last 20 minutes because... Kane, I, I just... Forward. I want people to like take a step back from the Kane criticism. <laughs> like people are killing him for not being... I mean, in that match, I was in the bar I was in when Kane went down, sort of semi hurt for a moment. There were people cheering, England fans cheering, saying "Take him off," and I turned around to him like, "Who are you going to bring on, Calvert Lewin?" And he was like, "Yeah, because Kane's out of form." And it's like, "Well, and you trust Calvert Lewin more in a match against Germany? Like, what have you seen from Calvert Lewin that makes you think suddenly this is going to be the answer?" And they then hugged me euphorically when. Kane scored and told me I was correct. So there was that moment. But nice. So you got you got some digits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I do think people. It's as if people are only judging Kane based on either is he scoring or the chances. And the reality is, with the way England are set up, he is dropping so deep to get involved in the play. And then actually, almost every goal England then score 
he is playing a crucial part in creating that goal. Even if he isn't the, yes. you know, the Sterling first goal, he drops deep. He links up the play that then gets the ball to Shaw, that then Shaw crosses it in. And he's also making another run, which gets more attention from the defenders than Sterling's run in front of him. Similar to against Croatia, where he made the space by making the run. So I think people, it's a very simple analysis of Kane's game at the moment. But uh, but yeah, I do have to offer a public apology to Luke Shaw and his fat ass. I mean, g- going back to what Sam said, though, I mean, Grealish has to start from now on, right? Oh, um, does every he? time because think... every time he comes on, they seem yeah, to get that, an instant spark. That doesn't equate to it over ninety minutes. Like that, that's an impact sub kind of thing. Um, you look, we just beat Germany two 0 without him on the pitch for twenty minutes, but it doesn't mean it would have been five nil because he started. Like it doesn't, it doesn't correlate. I think, you know, I question. Well, it kind of has to tactics. correlate a little. I mean, he was on for both goals. <laughs> uh, uh, look, I think it's tough. It's also tough. I haven't conceded a goal. It's basically a winning formula to start tinkering with it now. Don't get too smart is an element here. There's a, there has to be an except now. Again, my fear is again, they're now going to play in definitely in the quarterfinals and potentially the semifinals Two, They will be favorites. The onus will be on them to attack. They will be up against sides who will sit back and try and absorb pressure. And we saw against Scotland that that can lead to a situation where England create nothing. Whereas it, you know, like Germany got hit on the counter attack for both of those goals and for basically everything England did well. It, it, it was reliant on at times Germany pushing forward a bit. So that is my one fear, but you know, Southgate said it after the match, which I give him credit for. He said, if I'd picked this formation and we'd lost, I would have been killed for it. So at least he, he knows what he's, <laughs> Dead. Yeah. he knows the risks that he's taking. And I don't want to come across as if I totally changed my tune, but you know, still having not conceded a goal, even though there was a, more luck in that in, against Germany than maybe in previous matches. But tough to stunly start. The only temptation I would have is Declan Rice was really suffering with cramp in that match. So I could see Henderson coming in for Declan Rice as a way of resting him. Um, And if you are going to rest players, not that you can really do it in the final three matches of a tournament, but if you are, then this is the match where you got to rest them. Because you can't rest them in a semifinal and you can't rest them in a final. So if you are, if you do think... Henderson comes in and maybe, you know, you might have concerns even for someone like Saka that is a really young player playing three big matches back to back to back with, you know, only a few days off. Maybe it's worth giving Sancho or, you know, Foden comes back in. You could kind of see where you tinker there, but drastically changing it and suddenly having Grealish in, that might be risky. But on that note, I guess we can say, what's our prediction for the England-Ukraine match? Oh, you want to start there? Okay. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, England's group were technically in the group of death in hindsight in this quarterfinal. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Based on tournament results, yeah. Two of them and a good performance, you know, based on tournament results. Crazy to think that that group of death has no one left. Group of um, death is but, officially dead. I mean, Italy <laughs> yes. Italy might but, say, you know, Switzerland were in their group, right? And Switzerland, Switzerland have yeah. knocked out France, so they might also try and compete with us. They for might the say they're in the harder one. 
Um, I think England will win. I think they'll win in 90 minutes. I think it will be a similar grind that England have had, though. I think the first half will be pretty slow. They'll try and... They'll just try and figure them out. What They've been game managing it really well at the moment. I think they try and understand whether the right wing makes sense, whether the left wing, whether it makes sense to play through the middle more. And I think they did that against Germany, which is why it came good with Grealish. They found a way through. Um, I, I think they'll do something similar with the Ukrainians. And I think it'll be a similar score, maybe like 2-0 within 90 minutes. Um, yeah, I don't think it will be as difficult or as tense because I think you, I'll get that feeling that England will break through eventually. But yeah. I was going to say real quick, they should note they're we're, uh, traveling to Rome for that one. So they're yeah. not going to be in front of a home, a predominant home crowd yeah. for the yeah. first time. Yeah, which could make a difference. And also just having to travel um, will be a bit, you know, a different rhythm for them. But I, I, I don't think with professional footballers who travel week in, week out and play in Europe on Wednesday and then play an away match in the UK on a Saturday, like I don't think you can use that as an excuse. Like if that, I don't think this England team would anyway. But if that gets, if they lose, and then people say, "Well, it was the fact that this is, you know, they're athletes who are very much used to the concept of playing a match on a weekend, on a midweek, and then traveling for a big one on, on well, big one, so to speak." Um, I think I'll keep it quick. I think England are going to win this comfortably. I thought they beat Germany by a couple of goals. I think they'll beat Ukraine. I'll say by three or four. So I'm. This is the last time I think I'm going to be super confident because I'll be less confident against the Danes if that is who they play, and I'll definitely Sneak be peak. I'll definitely be less confident against in a final against the Italians or the or whoever else it makes it there. But in this one, I'm very confident. Yeah, I'm with both of you. I think you know Ukraine has let up goals every match, and I think that'll continue. My question for both of you is: Do they continue with the clean sheet, England, in this one? Yeah, um, I think in a way this is where they're l- the most likely to concede because I could see Ukrainian. There are they do have some talented players going forward, and I could see a situation where it's two or three nil England, and they kind of start really going forward and they get that goal. I mean, England have been very solid defensively, but they have ridden a bit of luck, right? Particularly against Germany, where early on Germany looked really threatening, and then you had the big Muller chance, and Timo Werner had a pretty good chance as well. So. I don't think they're going to finish. I don't think they're going to win the Euros and not concede a goal. But who knows? That would be special. Last time they didn't concede a goal in the group stages, 1966. So, Bingo. So I guess, so we're all going England. I guess staying on that side of the draw, what do you think of the... um... The other game, then the Denmark Czech Republic one. The other, other game. game, Sam. <laughs> what are those <laughs> losers doing over is. there? Uh, I think this for me. This is actually the toughest one to call. Uh, which now I think Denmark are are doing well without Christian Eriksen. I think they found a little bit of the rhythm. There does seem to be a momentum behind them, and I've not been overly impressed with the Czech Republic. But I do feel like this is two teams that kind of cancel each other out a little bit but i think denmark will will get through i wouldn't be confident enough to say they win in 90 minutes this might be the extra time one for me but i i think uh i think Den- i think denmark get through yeah i think i think the last couple of games denmark have scored four as well i, I mean I, I i guess it's russia and wales but i, I wouldn't pre-tournament have put the checks that much higher than both of those teams either i think i think denmark 
I'm more confident in Denmark scoring goals than I am the Czech Republic. Like the Czech Republic are pretty structured and they've um, had some good performances or at least solid performances throughout the tournament. So, but I just think the Danes are like for like just a better team. So I'd, I'd see this one be maybe like 2-1, 3-1 um, to Denmark. So yeah, I think I've got England, Denmark as the semi as well. Frank? Yeah, I'm with both of you. This, this, this is tough. I, Denmark has looked impressive. Yeah, like Sam said, scoring eight in the last two matches. But I feel like the Czech Republic have looked pretty impressive too. I mean, Netherlands was supposedly going to be the team that kind of meets England in the semis, right? And they took care of them pretty handedly, I thought. I don't know about that. I think that was a pretty even game. The Netherlands had a quite a few decent chances to take the lead. They, and then that match flipped in the space of 45 seconds where the Netherlands should yeah. have been 1-0 up, miss an incredibly good chance to score, and then right up the other end, they're down right, to 10 men. Right, the other way. Then yeah. if, if that happens again for the Czech Republic, then yeah, they're going to beat Denmark. But, <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it'll be close, but I think Denmark will advance. All right. And then on paper, this is along with England... The other heavy favorite, Spain, coming into this one. Obviously, goals are flowing. They've scored 10 in the last two matches. Now, albeit they had an additional 30 minutes in the last one to get two of them. Don't always look the most solid defensively, but I think their class will see them through. I think they've kind of found their rhythm a bit, and I do feel like Switzerland were very good against France, but... We also saw Italy handle Switzerland pretty easily. Defensively, Switzerland are definitely not, you know, that that reliable either. So I think Spain will be able to score goals, and I don't think Switzerland will be able to keep up with them. So this might be the highest scoring match of the, not a bold prediction, I suppose, based on what we've seen, but I think uh, Spain will go through. Yeah, I I think it's it's kind of an old cliche, but it's kind of like you score one, we'll score two, you score two, we'll score three kind of thing. I just think the Spanish will be able to easily outscore the Swiss. So even if the Swiss get goals, the Spanish will get more. I just think they've got more creativity and flair to do it. I don't think this will be a defensive game. I think they'll both, Switzerland will realise that they've, they'll be able to get at the defence and score goals. And I think Spain will just think, well, we can, <laughs> we can score more. We've got more kind of capable players up front, especially if Morata's firing a bit similar to what he did against the Croatians. Um, so, yeah, I think this will be high scoring. I think maybe you could see like four or five in it. So I, I'm going to go for Spain. Yeah, this is one of those ones, if, you know, if you were Swiss and you're coming in being like, oh, we've scored six in the last two. We got to feel pretty good. And then Spain's like, really? Well, we scored 10 in the past two. So so suck it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think I kind of agree with you with both of you on this one as well. My only worry is watching that the Spain match, Yes, they did end up winning that 5-3 and extra, but there was a point at the very beginning of that extra time where Croatia missed a golden opportunity to score, yeah. and that could have completely changed that match. I mean, Croatia, could, we could be talking about Croatia right now. So the fact that they kind of survived that match, and they are a worry. I, I don't think they should be as favored as they are. I, I, I feel worry. the opposite. I would stay away from this. I feel the opposite if I'm... And the fact that you're saying stay away makes me feel even more confident about Spain. <laughs> but I feel the opposite. I feel like Spain will come out of that feeling more confident. They'll feel like they kind of took a couple of punches that they maybe didn't think 
that they, I feel that that was a test of character for them. I think any team that, if you look at it, compare it with France, I think you have a team that blows a lead late on, goes to extra time and then finds a way to win. That's actually a testament to the resolve within the squad. So even if Croatia had taken that chance, I actually think Spain still would have won because they were creating chances. And so I think what they'll walk out of that now feeling, even though they haven't had to play from behind, is thinking, if we really need to score, we're capable of it. And we also know we can go through a little bit of a test. But Eddie, isn't the old cliche, always fear a team that's got nothing to lose? And the Swiss, I think, are that team. No, I don't think so. Not when you hear them speaking. No, you don't think so? No, no, no. When you hear the Swiss team think, they believe in themselves. They don't think... They went into that France game, the camp, when you listen to them talk, they went into that France game thinking that France were favorites, but they had a legitimate chance. I don't think any team, once you're in the quarterfinals, I don't think they've got nothing to lose ideas anymore. That was that was my point, is that once you're into a knockout stage of a major tournament, you you do have something to lose just for the fact that you're there. Um, but I, I think Spain gifted Croatia ways into that game, if I'm honest, and they'll just realize yeah. that. I don't think it will happen again. And then the final match. And then last but not least. Yeah, the most compelling on paper, certainly, Italy-Belgium. Um, I would have picked Belgium. You know, I am pre-tournament, I had Belgium making the final. I think, unfortunately for them, just the injury problems they have, it's unclear whether or not Hazard will play and De Bruyne will play, but they're not practicing and training at the moment. So I think you can't rely on... I can't imagine either of them starting that match, whether or not they're in a position to maybe come off the bench. But... I just think this is an Italian team that is extremely well-oiled. You know, they don't concede goals. They are threatening going forward and kind of getting more and more confidence. Yeah, well-oiled literally and figuratively. And uh, I think, um, you know, I, I have... I'm, I'm starting to, when I looked at how Portugal really pegged Belgium back in that second half, I just think that, uh, and even, even when I think back to when they struggled without De Bruyne at the beginning of the tournament, just how everything that whenever Belgium have played well, only when he's been on the pitch. And so to me, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident the Italians will be too good for them. And if Belgium proved me wrong, then that's great. Cause it's actually great for the tournament. Cause they, they are maybe the best team on paper potentially, but uh, yeah, I think Italy will go through. I think it's a bit of a shame, really, that you don't have, like, Hazard seemed to be coming into his own a little bit as the tournament went on, and De Bruyne is obviously an incredible player, but um, it's a shame that they're not going to be fully fit, and I just think that plays to the Italians, even though if if you, that Austrian game kind of spooked, probably, Italian backers a little bit into thinking, like, oh, okay, they're not as kind of all-encompassing as we saw in the group stage, but still looked, for me, still looked pretty me comfortable. Just a, exactly. For me, it's a shame that it's just a shame, I think, that Hazard and De Bruyne aren't playing. But I, I think for that exact reason, the Italians will win. Um, I, I probably maybe had it slightly the other way, like you say, Eddie. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go for the Italians. So, Eddie, it's kind of a stupid question, but does that technically still mean they haven't conceded a goal? What do you mean? The Italians? Do you mean within 90 minutes? Like, yeah, like how would that get s- scored? Like, would you say... Is is like is a clean sheet only ninety minutes? No, you have to count the full. No, yeah, I won't count I penalties, but I'll count extra okay. time goals. Because otherwise, you can't credit Spain with scoring ten in the last two, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was just wondering, like, when people say something like that, you know, like they've 
I didn't know if a clean sheet is just 90 or if it's the full time. Yeah, uh, I'm with both of you guys. Same same feeling. If Belgium were fit and at 100%, I would go Belgium. But too many injuries and, and for too many good players. So I think Italy are going to scrape by here. All right. I guess that wraps up our predictions for the next round of the Euros. Hopefully everyone will have listened to this in time. Uh, it might be a quick listen for some as it will only be out on the day of those first sets of matches. And I guess now we can turn things over to our interview with uh, Sean Levy. Exciting to have our, our first jockey ever on the podcast, and it should be an interesting conversation about his career in horse racing. Well, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast, everyone. We are joined by the guest of this episode, Sean Levy. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. No, not at all. Absolute pleasure. And um, nice to meet you guys. Yeah, no, it's, and we know you're, we've caught you on your way back from, from Newbury, where you've, as you told, just told us, you managed to have a winner in the last. Were you, were you pleased with the, with the day, the day of rides? Um, I think, look, all in all, I was, you know, I, I did think going into the meeting that I'd have a couple of winners. Um, the couple of winners I thought I would have didn't amount to, to winners. <laughs> um, I hit the crossbar, one of them, and, and lucky enough, I had a, a ride for William Knight, who I've never rode for before in the last race today, 20 to 1. And he did say that the price on, on this occasion didn't reflect how well the horse was going at home. And he thought it would be banged there. And it happened to be the winner in the lucky last, as they say. That might actually, I'd, I want to get into your career and your background because it's really fascinating. But maybe that's an interesting point just to start. How does that work then when you're picking up extra rides? How much instruction are you then getting from, if you've never been on it before, how much instruction are you getting from the trainer as to how the horse needs to be ridden and what the expectations are? And do you ever just get a situation where they kind of just give you free reign to do do as you see fit in the race? I think the best way of putting it is this way. Um, I've always rode for Richard Hannon. Well, well, the majority of my career in England, I've rode for Richard Hannon. And he's, you know, of the belief that it is the jockey's job to know what he's doing. Come, you know, come, come, come once the gates open in a race. Right. So he does not tie you down to instruction, but as I do ride from every day, you do have an insight to how horses go and, and how, how you'd ride certain horses and, you know, things like that. Um, when it comes to outside rides, you know, um, you do get some trainers who are very particular and want you to ride the horses exactly as they'd like them to be ridden. You know, because they've, they've obviously analyzed the race, they know their horse and they know, they've kind of visualized what they want to, to happen for this horse to win. Um, they become very difficult people to ride for because, you know, I mean, like you can analyze a race as much as you want, but once those gate open, it, it, it goes, it could go any, any, any amount of different ways. Um, but a lot of trainers, you know, a lot of trainers I get on with personally um, would Obviously, if I haven't ridden horses, they would tell me, they give me insight into the horse itself and then obviously allow me then to, to make decisions as, as, as they happen in front of me. Yeah, it makes sense. No, no, it was just always one of those things that I always, because obviously when you see, you know, if you're on retainer and you're just riding for the same trainer and you get the chance to ride them, you know, before and in multiple races, it makes sense. But that was always one of those areas that did interest me. And I guess now kind of, 
question that we had to jump on straight away, but obviously a bit of your background. You were born in, in Swaziland, now Eswatini. You then moved to Ireland as a teenager. Um, you're unique, and I don't want to certainly give the impression that in any way you as a jockey, you're defined by this fact, but as being one of the exceptions as a non-white jockey in the United Kingdom, which is much rarer there than it is maybe elsewhere. Um, have, in terms of when you, when you went to Ireland and you came through obviously at Coolmore, um, did you ever feel like that was an obstacle in any way to your, in, to your career? An obstacle, no. Um, an inconvenience, maybe yes. You know, not to the not to the levels you probably think of, but like, I I never felt it was something that was ever going to stop me. Um, but you know, there were aggra aggravating moments. You know, there were there were times when I didn't particularly like the way certain situations and things happened in that regard. But all in all. It was never something I, ref I I had to reflect on daily, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. And then when you see, for example, obviously there's still not been many sort of non-white male jockeys coming through, but you have seen the recent success with Holly Doyle and with Rachel Blackmore. So there's kind of a, at least some non, some, I don't want to call women minorities, but in the in relative to the sport, they certainly are. Um, do you feel as if there's a changing of the tide a little bit in that sense that it is a sport that's opening up to people from different backgrounds and of different ethnicities and races and genders? You know, in a lot of ways, I think that's 100% true. Um, and I, the way I look at it is this way. Um, they were the majority of the time there was always male jockeys in racing, right? Um, it was, the doors weren't closed to women jockeys, but there wasn't many of them. And as a result, the few that did come through, you know, Haley Turner, the ones that I can, I can, I have memory of, Haley Turner did kick open a lot of doors herself, which then obviously led to Holly Doyle, who's kicked open a hell of a lot more doors. And then you see, as a result, then, it's become easier for more and more to jump in and give it a go, right? And in my, in say, in my situation, yeah, being from Africa and whatever have you, that's fine. I become the minority in a, in a sport that is not, the doors are not closed to the likes of me, say. It's just, I happen to be the minority at the moment. But you know, the more success I have, obviously then you get more people wanting to do it or feeling as though, you know, there is light at the end of that tunnel if they were to pursue it. Um, the more that happens, the more the gate the gates open, so to speak. You got to remember, like racing in itself as a sport has always been diverse. The majority of good riders in England happen to be Irish jockey for a long, long time. You know, and then you see the top the top people at the moment riding. Oshie Murphy's from Ireland. You know, it's it's you got William Buick. Not sure exactly. Is William Buick from Sweden, or something like that? Yeah, I think he's half Danish or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just but says like, an odd accent. But... Is, like, it, it was never, it, it was never a sport that wasn't diverse, so to speak. It was just, it did tend to suit whoever was in it at the time because racing does have that 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 kind of we're all in a bubble kind of scenario, you know. And 
like I said, once Haley opened doors, more like Holly's come after her, and I'm sure after Holly, a hell of a lot more will come after her because that's the kind of that's the way it works. Yeah, and I'd, I'd kind of like to get into, you know, your move and transition into when you went to uh, to Ireland and your your parents were working at Ballydoyle. What was that like? I mean, you were a teenager then, right? So that must have been a crazy transition, just as a person. And then, you know, how how did you start? kind of getting involved and getting rides and things like that to be honest with you like like i would want to like point this out riding in itself my dad my dad was an apprentice in epsom he he pursued it as the only one in his family who had an interest in racing and then pursued riding and he ended up signing on to run smite in epsom years ago he then went on to ride in germany switzerland a few other countries like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say on the top of my head and you know as luck would have it he ended up in Swaziland where he met my mom and where I was born so like racing in itself you know was more my dad's thing than anyone else's in my family you know on both sides of the thing I, you know, my mom would my mom rode a little bit but that was because my dad happened to make her <laughs> but um as when I grew up, we always my dad ran a bookies in Swaziland called they had called it the Tattle Cells, and I remember my memories when I was very young in Swaziland was my dad having horses of his own. He used to race them in South Africa, and he used to have a, a track um, sponsored by the couple of hotels in Ezulwini. Um, just you know, you you'd refer to him as you know pony tracks, I suppose in this country but like he that's what he'd done and he had a bookies and but he's he's his first passion was boxing and you know over time he went more into boxing and left the racing behind so by the time i got to eight or nine he had sold everything to do with horses by then and had pursued boxing like totally pursued boxing i think he took um he took a team to the commonwealth games in malaysia from swaziland because that was his main passion and by the time I was nine, I had absolutely no interest in horses by then, and they were gone anyway. And it was only for me meeting a mate of mine who used to, he didn't go to the same school as me, but he used to go, they used to have a program where they used to have young kids that wanted to ride, used to be brought to a place called the, the Zulwini Stables, where they were taught how to ride and, and all of this. And I was talking to him one day, and he said, ah, oh, I'm going there on the Saturday, whatever have you. You know, we had a pretty free... You know, we had we had a pretty free lifestyle as far as kids are concerned in Africa. When the weekend comes and there's no school, I used to wake up in the morning, go and see my friends, and I wouldn't be back until dinner time. You know, so one Saturday I woke up and I just met up with my mate. We went down to this school, and I just started writing lessons. They were free; it was all good. And I started getting all right at it. My brother tagged along. We started doing all this. So then I used to, on the way back from school, I used to get off the bus and go down there during the week and then leg it back back home before you know anyone knew where I was going in this and this one weekend I woke up and I said to my dad here listen is there any way you could just take us down to the stables and he's like what I says yeah I'm gone I want to go down the stables I've been riding there and all this you know now I've, I've picked it all up now I can do the old canter all of this carry on so I wanted to you know make me old pops proud and that says come on come and see what I've been doing you know and he I bring, he brings me down there anywhere then the first thing that got me was he, he knew where he was taking me. 
And I was thinking, I'm, I'm trying to surprise him. He knows where he's taking me. And we get down to this yard anyway. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going in there. I'm going to ride some horses. And he's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. He gets out the car. Next thing, he just chats to everyone in the yard like he knew him for years. And I was like, what? And it, it just, that's exactly where that, well, that's when it started. And it become, I think what it was, it become riding, become my decision, not his. And it just went from there. And I done show jumping in Swaziland all up until the time we left. And he seen how much me and my brother got into riding that it kind of clicked with him, you know, as an idea going forward. You know, if we were liking riding so much, maybe we should go back to England and pursue it. And that was the plan. And, you know, he, 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 he put us, he put us all, what was gonna say, put us all in a banana bun, brought us over to England. But no, we, we got over to England and, um, do you know, he he got the job in, in O'Brien's. He he went back riding out. And then he started taking me and my brother pony racing. And then it just developed from there. So obviously you were in Ireland and then and then England eventually. Um, when you moved over to England, obviously when you were working with Cornwall kind of going across the world, what did um, UK racing offer you uh, compared to when you were based in Ireland? Like, why did you make the jump? from Ireland over to the UK to join um, kind of like Hannon and I think you're with O'Meara for a bit as well. Um, what was the driver behind that? Um, I think it was a lot of things. It, personally, I would have never signed on only for pony racing, and I, which I'd done in Ireland for a couple of summers, which had nothing to do with O'Brien's and Coolmore on that. But I think that's what gave me my foundation, I suppose, and my confidence to pursue actually riding. And obviously with my dad riding O'Brien's, it was easy enough to slip in there on the weekends. And the idea was to actually learn a bit more of a trade there and then actually come over to England and sign on. But as luck would have it, my dad got sick and Aiden offered me to sign on with him, which I'd done. And, you know, I just started riding over there. For me at the time, I was in two minds whether to just stay in school or not you know I didn't actually know if I wanted to pursue writing or not and he pushed me into it he pushed me thinking that I had enough talent to do it so I did and you know I was under I was under a great blanket with all of them not only with the opportunities but the the level of security and everything they gave me for those those early years and then not only that, but the confidence to let me ride in all of those good races all over the world, you know, I'll be forever grateful for what they've done for me in my apprenticeship. But, you know, there did come a time when I felt as though, you know, if I carried on doing what I was doing, which was great, don't get me wrong, I had that feeling that obviously because Joseph and all of them come up and they happen to be champion apprentices with all those things I want to do, do myself. And I always felt like if I did carry on, I didn't want to be sitting in a position where I'd look at, you know, look at things I didn't accomplish gone by and, and blame the people around me for them, you know? So I did get to a point where I kind of thought, you know, what, I'm actually at the point now where I want to go out and actually earn any, earn everything I can on my own back. Because if I ever was to fail, at least I would always turn around and say, you know what, you gave it a go. 
as opposed yeah. to not giving it a go, always have that security, but then always have it at the back of your mind thinking of what could have been or, you know? Yeah, no, it makes a, a lot of sense. And I mean, you obviously, you know, you speak fondly of your time working with Aiden O'Brien, arguably the most famous and successful trainer there is. His public persona is quite cold and professional and sort of methodical is, but then everyone who works with him seems to speak about him quite affectionately. Is the public persona really different from what you then get privately? Look, at he, I would, I would stretch as far as saying he is the ultimate professional and, you know, someone like him as meticulous as he is, you know, you can, you can probably see that publicly. And I wouldn't say he's very different privately either, but at the same time, he is a bit of crack. Like he's good fun. You know, he's not, he's not all gloom and doom and, and do you know what I mean? Marks the straight line. He's, he is a bit of fun, a very, an absolute gentleman, a, a very religious man. And you know, he's, you know, once you understand the man, it's, he's a great guy. Absolute great guy. Now, did you, did you kind of grow up there with, uh, with Joseph and, and Donica, obviously, I guess they're a little younger than you, right? But did you kind of see them progress and know that they would eventually be as successful kind of as they are now? I think that was that was always going to be the case, you know, with with their father's guidance, that was, it was inevitable, do you know what I mean? It was always going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the biggest thing you've seen for two for, for the whole family was they, they always worked as, as a, as a unit. Do you mean it wasn't one person's goal and another person's goal. It was a family goal all the time, which is very admirable. And you could always see no matter what, it, it, you didn't know what successes they were going to have back then, but you always knew individually they would always all be successful because they always backed each other up. And I guess from there, just to get back more into then when you, you know, went to the UK and obviously I guess 2018 kind of is your breakout season, obviously with the, I mean, externally, what would seem like the highlight being when the winning the thousand guineas at 66 to one um, with Bills and Brooke. I, can, I guess sort of pointless to ask you what that's, what's that like as an experience? Cause it just must be incredible. But one thing I'd be interested in knowing when you go into a classic on a horse that's priced at 66 to one, do you really give yourself any chance? I mean, obviously in this instance, you, you should have, but sort of what's the mentality then in that situation? Do you feel a bit like you're making up the numbers or, or do you think the odds are often quite wrong in terms of how the horses are priced? Do you know what? There's a, there's a lot of ways you can look at it, but the way I looked at it on that occasion was I didn't understand, number one, how the horse was 66 to 1 after finishing fourth in a nail going in the first place. They finished fourth in a trial. Um, I think Hannon had another horse in the race, um, lovely horse owned by Jeanette McCreary, Anna Nerinium, and it won the, the free handicap, and it was priced ahead of mine. I couldn't believe it, and I kept thinking, like, well, I just want a handicap. I said, how the hell is that going to be ahead of this thing? And I finished fourth in a, in a nail quit. But taken into account, I always thought Bisson Brook had a very strong foundation as far as a two-year-old career was concerned. Do you know like, She danced a lot of dances as a two-year-old and she come up trumps a lot of times. And like I knew the filly and I think the massive thing was when she ran in the nail quit, she, she hadn't... Um, 
she hadn't come to hand at that stage. She was still woolly in her coat. She hadn't really, but after the male Gwyn, she completely transformed. Her, 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 she, it's as if she woke up the next day with a summer coat and had put on 10 pounds, you know? Like it was, it was quite amazing to see how she had transformed from that run to the other. And me riding at work, I kept thinking to myself, all right, look at what happened to Neil Gwynn. She was a bit keen, blah, blah, blah. I thought, look, all she has to do is settle. And there's no, if she settles, I get five pounds more out of her. I don't see why I can't be in the first four again. So we talked to Richard, obviously. It's a lot easier going into a race like that as an underdog, especially six to six to one underdog, because it completely doesn't really matter what happens. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's just hoping for a good run and hope you come in happy and hope she comes in safe and sound. Do you know? That's ultimately what you go out thinking. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to place in this. And then, do you know what? She jumped out the gate. She settled straight away. And do you know what? I actually didn't even move on her until we got down near the bushes. And I kept thinking to myself, every time I ride that bloody track in Newmarket, and I'm traveling this well, I hit that dip and I go from hero to zero and end up finishing nowhere or end up just getting beat. And I kept thinking, nah, I ain't moving. I'm staying here. But on my, on my right, I had Sylvester Gallup and he kind of had me in a pocket, which I was happy with initially because I needed her to settle anyway. But I kept getting closer and closer to dip and kind of going, Sylvester, I need you out of my way here now in a minute. But he's looking at me thinking, you're 66 to one, what are you on about? And I'm like, so you've got to get out the way here and he's like yeah funny enough as I was thinking it his horse just fell away I pulled my thing out and it just absolutely took off ran in through the dip as if it wasn't there and ran up the hill the other side don't get me wrong I did think the way it got there I thought surely there was something behind me gonna pick me up and no, it wasn't to be and she she picked up her guineas and do you know what the first thing I thought going past the line was I don't know, not joy, nothing like that, but absolute relief. It was just and nothing but relief. I felt like I had been trying for so long just to get... I went from, you know, your dreams as a kid start off, I want to win a derby. I want to win a guineas. I want to win a classic. Then over time, the game changes. It becomes more of a job. Now I need to pay my mortgage. Now I need, do you know what I mean? Now I need to ride everywhere and everywhere I can. And then the group ones keep escaping you. You keep the good horses a very hard fight. And then you get to points where you're thinking like, all right, do you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to get a derby. I'm not going to get guineas. Oh, come on. Any group one will do. I'll even take a German bloody guineas at this stage. You know how you getting? That's the way it gets there. And then I was, that's exactly where I was before that guineas winner. I went past the line and I just went, oh, thank God for that. And has that then changed your approach to riding subsequently? Like, do you feel like a weight's lifted off your shoulders? Has that changed the rides that you take or? Oh, but it was huge for me that year. Once that had happened, there was none of this trying to, there's, there's something, there's a lot to be said for trying too hard to win. If you try too hard to win all the time, you normally don't bloody win. You know, you kind of have to be in the middle somewhere. But that, that's easily, that's easier said than done. But once I had won that and that relief that, you know, that monkey had left, stopped galloping and pulling the ears off me everywhere I went. <laughs> then I was at a point where I was just riding better for it. 
you know, my confidence had like absolutely got to a serious height. And I started loving the game. Like I loved everything. I loved writing classics. It was everything. Every donkey, just chuck them all out. I write them all. And, you know, as a result, the winners started coming. Success breeds success. Your name was everywhere. The, the, the lad that won the 60, 61 guineas and all this. You were getting all the rides. You know what I mean? It just kept flowing. And then it got, it, it, it was going so well for like a month. And then I fell off and broke my collarbone. And that was the end of that. Yeah, I guess it's the unfortunate highs and lows of racing. It's a cruel sport in that respect. You touched on the, the pressure being less when you're going into it as a 66 to 1. Are you always aware of exactly what the price is of a horse when you're riding it? Not, you know what? The thing is, the higher the price, the less the pressure. So, like, but not that's not necessarily so. When you actually, it's less the pressure because everyone else believes your horse to be 66 to 1. That's why it's 66 to 1. It's getting no support. It doesn't mean that's what you think of it. But you know, what you started to, what you started to think is, sure, it doesn't really matter. Sure, no one's going to give me shit over this because like, no one expects us to win anywhere. But then you flip the coin and when you write a favourite, people say, yeah, the pressure is different. You just approach it differently. But like for me, like, I've been writing for years. I don't, it doesn't, I don't really give a shit what price it is. It's whatever I think they're able to do. But the only difference is, what are you gonna? What are you gonna? What are you gonna think once it's beat? Like how many people follow a favorite in tobacco? How many favorites get beat all the time? Like so many. How many people follow a favorite into the battle just because, I don't know, the person that rides it or the person that trains it or whatever have you? But what actually makes the horse favorite? Sometimes, it, like, there's no actual real logic behind why the horse is favorite it's just it's just supported more than the other one but there's loads of occasions where look for this way that, that horse i rode today for william knight 20 to 1 but why was it 20 to 1 it got a lovely mark it actually placed twice and what drove it all the way to be 20 to 1? No one supported it at 20 to 1, but they supported the favor because that's how, do you know what I mean? That's just kind of the way it goes. And then as jockeys, are, is there ever discussion about that? So do you ever go into a race and you're talking amongst yourselves and you have that sense of, you know, if you're speaking hypothetically with, say, Ryan Moore, who's on a, you know, short price favorite, at, perhaps because it's an O'Brien horse with Moore on board. And do you then have the sense pre-race that you all know this pro i'm not really on the favorite i'm on the favorite in the betting market but we don't think this is going to be the favorite if the race plays out the way it should do well you think about it but like as far as having a conversation about it probably probably not so much you know you'd have a lot of times when say when say you have um Surely when you have five derby runners from one yard running in a race, someone's going to think their one's better than that one. And uh, like there's, there's every chance that two of them or, two, or even three of them are going to be priced wrong. But isn't that, that's, that's pretty much the beauty of racing though, isn't it? As long as you pick the one, right one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Kind of going off what Eddie said with that, um, I'm always intrigued with the 
like the communication between the jockeys, like in the changing room and things like that. Is it, for instance, you know, say you're, you're riding a horse in like the third or fourth race and, and you just know it's, it's just primed for this race. Are you keeping that quiet, not saying a word, or is everyone kind of open with each other, you know, kind of saying like, I really think I've got a good chance in this race or that race, or this force has come on really well, you know, is, is everyone to themselves because they just want to win or is it more of, you know, we're kind of all in this together. We're all riding, you know, what, anywhere from six to 12 races a day, sometimes even, you know, five days a week. How, how, what, what's that like? I suppose you could say, well, it's all relative, isn't it? So like, if I was talking to people who work in our yard, then I would go, I wouldn't just go as far as saying, here, I rode that last time. It's a bit tricky in the gates. Watch you going down the start. You know, try and settle it early. You know, that kind of information, that's that's normally shared information from the, no matter who's riding it all over. The, that's, that, that's the camaraderie we would have. I would tell any jockey that was riding a horse I rode before about the horse. As far as it goes competitively from in the race, it depends who's riding the horse. Because ultimately... <laughs> It's a race. It's a competition, right? I'm not going to tell him, hey, listen, if you follow me, mine's going to get tired here. And if you do this and you do that, you'll win. You know what I mean? Ultimately, do you know what? They wouldn't even ask. That's basically the best way of saying it. They wouldn't even ask. They'd ask you if it's a good ride. Is there anything I need to worry about? After that, they're pretty much on their own. It makes sense. I also, I want to go back to one thing you touched on, which is just the way people react. So... I think what's kind of unique, obviously, about horse racing, even though there are plenty of people, including you know the three of us, who love the sport and it doesn't rely on us having a bet on a race in order to have an interest. But obviously, the gambling side of the sport is a major component. And the downside to that maybe is a little bit what you touched on already, that when a favorite loses, particularly when you look on social media, there's a, there's a huge backlash from people who've lost money being critical of the horse or the jockey, um, oftentimes accusing it of being a fix. Um, did, is that something that you ever notice or you just sort of, it's a th your thick skin and now know by this point, just totally ignore it. To be honest, I, I personally just totally ignore it. Um, what could I say? It says once upon a time when I when I wasn't riding as much as I was or whatever have you. Remember a lot of the lads, a lot of the lads in the yard used to ride out and they used to obviously go into town, have lunch, and they they'd linger into the bookies. Um, I used to go in there and play on the old roulette machines. And I remember I remember going in there one day, and you know that virtual racing they have playing all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on this roulette machine. I'm, do you know what I mean? Chucking my pennies in the roulette machine, just messing about. Next thing, this guy, he's, he's getting all antsy. He's watching this virtual racing. And his horse obviously gets beat in this virtual race and all this. And next thing, he's, he's jumping all about, saying that the jockey gave gave it a shit ride. And I was like, well, fuck it. That, that's kind of what you're <laughs> dealing with, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's wow, a good... that's a bit of a sad reality. That uh, yeah, <laughs> like show me why, like, like, like I'm, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on all of those things. <laughs> Seriously, like I'm not looking. I, I can see how 
look, it can get intense. And it depending depending on your situation, your position in life, you know, it could it could it could be it could be a bad experience. But like at the end of the day, for me personally, you know what I mean? Like you know I mean you can tweet away, guys. It doesn't really bother me. You know, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know what happens what happens next is like you could tell me i gave everything today a bad ride but ultimately i don't work for the i don't work for them you know as long as my my owners the people that had the confidence and put me up are happy as long as my trainer that i ride for is happy as lo- as long as we're we've learned something of that situation and we're doing right by the horse going forward then the next day will ultimately not change for me. I'm still going to have to go to my job, ride another bunch of horses for my trainer, for different owners maybe. You know what I mean? It, it's a sport. It's never going to go. If you want, if, 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 if I want all the time, like, it wouldn't be much fun, would it? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. You might be glad to have but no, you get, you get what I'm saying. Like it, it's sport. Yeah, yeah. The same as any sport. No, no I, 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 uh, I agree with you. It's just, it's always funny to me, just because you see the accusations of something being fixed. You know, that's always the, you know, and there are YouTube accounts dedicated to highlighting races and horses and jockeys where they think it's a clear fix. And and I'm not saying I'm not going to. Uh, that there aren't instances of perhaps jockeys not trying their best. I'm, and again, not to think that I think the horse racing is some big fix, but you know, there are people who literally every bet, every time they lose, they think the only reason is it must be some massive conspiracy theory and it's a predetermined outcome, which just, it, it blows my mind personally as someone who loves the sport, but I'm just interested to see from a jockey's perspective, I would have thought that's just frustrating to give your best, lose a race and have someone turn around and say, you probably didn't try. Yeah, but you, you know, you know, these, there's so many ways of seeing it. The other thing is, sometimes you do actually give one a shopper, and then you come in and you're like, you're obviously at yourself anyway. You're thinking like, I mean, if I done this, if I done that, if I done that. But then ultimately, the thing about it is, you know, what I mean, foresight, having the foresight to go in and do that. That's what you wanted to do and what that. But and, and it doesn't work out. You had foresight going into the race. It doesn't work out. Things go pear-shaped. But then you see, then you pull up, and now you've got hindsight. And now you're thinking in the back of, oh, if I done this, if I done that. You know, and then there's that wonderful saying, you know, hindsight is the foresight of a fool. Just like at the end of the day, like you can only learn from that experience. You can't go back and do anything about it. It's done. And what's to say, you know, put in that situation again without the benefit of hindsight would you actually do it differently you know it's you got, like the thing about horse racing is like i think what people can't seem to get their heads around is the fact that it's a game of two minds it's not just me thinking these things like the horse is also thinking things i'm i have to read what he's doing and then read what i'm doing and then like, there's a hell of a lot a, there's a lot more going on than what you see visually it's, and also i guess it's unique too right in that most people who are then watching a the sport haven't ridden a horse so whereas this is it 
most people who watch football have probably played football at some level, you know, or rugby at some level. But now you're in this situation where, you know, the overwhelming percentage of spectators have probably never even been on a horse. Precisely. And it's like this, like if you if you're on a horse, you, you get to understand simple facts of, of, of horsemanship or even riding. Sometimes you say stop. Sometimes it says, no, I'm going to go quicker. You know, complete reversal. <laughs> when you watch it on the telly, you're going, oh, he's too weak. He can't hold that. <laughs> I don't know. Thing weighs like, five, what was the weight? Majority 500, 500 kilo. I'm pretty sure when it decides to do something else, you're not going to decide it. You're not going to, you know what I mean? You're not going to make its mind up for it. Classic saying of a horse doesn't know its form, right? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So uh, I, I had a kind of, you brought up that point about this person watching like virtual racing and things like that. And when I worked, like I used to work in kind of bookmakers as well. And one of the things that was sometimes levied at flat racing, especially is that, there's too much of it. Um, there's kind of, you saw with some race courses like Chelmsford that went through financial issues, uh, Foslas in Wales went through financial issues because there was too much racing. There was, it was somehow like diluting the quality of flat racing. Um, the kind of question to you is like, do the jockeys feel that? Because, you know, the amount of times you'll see, like say you, for example, you're at Newbury for six, then you're at the evening race on a Monday at Windsor for seven especially with kind of Hannon. So do you find that jockeys are kind of overstretched with the, you know, starting at what, midday, ending at maybe like 9, 9.30 in the evening? Uh, do you, what do you think about that? Um, look, there's an overall politics behind it all. And I wouldn't say I'm great at the whole politics side of it, but what I would say is, I think, yes, it does stretch us. Um, I think before obviously COVID come into the picture, we the rules would have allowed you to ride at nine meetings a week, which then would have allowed you to ride, you know, a couple of double meetings through the week, a few double meetings through the week, which kind of allows you to do everything. Like if you're self-employed, well, that's brilliant, right? But with horse racing, you take into account the fact that there's a lot of it you don't ultimately have choice on. If I can give you an example, I would say, if, say, you were an owner, you had 20 horses in a yard, we found that Kempton and, Kempton and say, Wolverhampton on an evening is on. Now, you're going to run one of your horses in Kempton to start with, and then you're going to run two of your horses then in Wolverhampton on the evening. What would that mean for me is I'd have to go, and you want me to ride them, obviously. And what, the, what that would mean for me is I'd have to try and fill the card to a point that I would still, the rule was you still had to have enough time to get to the next said meeting, right? But they're two hours away from each other, these are. So what you'd have to do is I would, from my house, I would have drive an hour to Kempton Road there. Then if I got a couple more rides, so be it. But then I would have to get in my car and then make sure I got to the meeting in Wolverhampton to ride the other horses. But now that rule is coming. Because of COVID, we can't be going from meeting to meeting. So as a result, now there's only one meeting 
a jockey can only do one meeting a day. But what that has opened up now is there's less that travel. A lot of the jockeys aren't spread as thin. So now you just go into the Kempton for four rides or five rides or whatever have you, and then someone else will go to the other meeting to do the other ones. Do you know what I mean? Which opens up opportunity. You're not spread as thin. You know, there's, I think, personally, a hell of a lot more benefits for it. And that's great. But the other problem is there is still more and more racing all the time. There's more and more Sunday racing now. I think now they want to have evening Sunday racing. The thing about it is you're having more and more races without without the without any quality involved in all of it and with quality should be prize money so the, the spreading the whole thing thinner and thinner and thinner so now it's becoming more difficult for jockeys because now you, you're going in there trying to earn and you're earning more out of your riding fee than you ever are winning anything and i think it's it's just i think personally less racing is great because more racing only helps it for the people in the bookies that are punting on a lot as far as I know it, I think they're making all the money and but we're doing all the work. But at the same time, we don't benefit for it because what we're running for is absolute peanuts. You know, as opposed to any other country in the world, if you look at America, if you, if I was a jockey in America, I'd only ride on say, what? I wouldn't ride every day anyway, that's for sure. I'd ride big racing on the weekend. That'd be right. Maybe one, maybe I'd have to travel to one big race during the week, but that would be somewhere else if I was based on Gulfstream or something like that. But then if there was 12 race card on the day, you're looking at a claimer minimum pot, 80 grand. Whereas over here, you can race every single day, nearly five meetings on a day. Maybe that's an average, maybe guaranteed three meetings on a day. And you're talking, you're running for an average of two and a half grand a race. Minus the big pots, and you're only you're only going to see them on the weekend somewhere. I mean, now that you've kind of brought that up, I mean, have you ever thought about making a move to somewhere else to race? You know, like moving to the to the states and you know doing a year here. I guess here because I'm here, but um, you know, going to the states and and doing a full year of racing there, and and kind of maybe hopefully profiting from the for the bigger prize money and and same amount of races, things like that. A hundred percent. While I was in, while I was in O'Brien's before I actually moved to England, I went to a mate of mine. We just got on. We just, well, we blagged, we, we blagged it and went like, ah, we'll just get a, we'll get a job in America and go there for a couple of months. We didn't actually pick up the job or whatever have you, but I knew a couple of people out there. So we just got on a plane, flew out to America, um, went to Palmetto's in Goldstream, Palmetto's in, um, you know, Palmetto's anyway. And um, we went there and I ended up getting a job for um, Albertrani. And I rode for, so I rode track work for him for a couple of years. And you know, I look back at it now and I, I regret never trying to um, get a visa and try and ride out there. And, you know, it's one of those things though. England's quite difficult because if you do leave it, it's very hard to come back into it. You know, so you're kind of waiting, you're waiting to go bad before you can ultimately make the big jump to go somewhere else, you know? Yeah, it's, there's not a lot of examples of jockeys going abroad and ever coming back, really. Um, yeah. I guess we don't want to keep you forever. So there's a couple of questions. I know they'll have a few questions left, but um, 
if you if there's one horse around at the moment that you could ride, w- which would it be? Jesus. Or let's say two or three. I'll make it a little bit easier for you. Two or three, yeah. All of the ones I want in Ascot. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> do you know, personally, I don't think... Um, I can't really think of one horse that is actually... Obviously, you'd want to ride something that's solid that you would imagine can't get beat for the rest of the year. You know, and as things have worked out through the classics thus far in England, I I can't actually see one that I don't think will get beat later on. Do you know what I mean? Interesting. I, I probably yeah, I agree know, with you, but... Wrong, yeah, but could, you, could you mention a horse that is that you ultimately think... I know, like... Could you mention... Palace, so that, like, you know, like, when you see Frankel run, you know Frankel's not going to get beat. You know, yeah. so like if if it was the year of Frankel, everyone would go Frankel. So like as a jockey, you want the horse you know that can't get beat, and at the moment, you know the the majority of Group Ones and that are still quite open. But yeah. I'm just gonna stick with my I'm gonna stick with my little filly there because like, um, well, you got to stick to what you know at the moment. Um, I reckon that Snow Lantern, she's you know what I mean it's she's gonna get it together soon enough. Sooner, sooner rather than bloody later, isn't it? and um, <laughs> do you know I mean she's only she's only she's only one position away from winning a group one at the moment. So you know, I wouldn't trade her for anything. Um, other people's horses, I would have thought. I think that Saint Saint Barks O'Brien's horse that runs in the Eclipse at the weekend. Oh, yeah, Mark's Basilica, yeah. Yeah, you know, you can't go against him really for what he's done. Whereas you could you could find you could find holes in the other horse's armor, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean Mishra. I think he's just a solid horse, you know, he's a solid horse that has proven a lot so far. Um I wouldn't mind a spin on him. He looks very straightforward. Two year olds are still up in the air, so I'm not I'm not too sure about them. I'll 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 get you off oh, the hook. I, do, I personally I okay. do like that Johnson stare. The horse that Joe Fanning. Subjective. On. Oh, you know, I've, I've always, I've always loved the way Johnson trains his horses, and I'm just like how straightforward they are. You know, like I know a lot of them are front runners or whatever have you, but they're not. He doesn't seek out. He doesn't train them to be front runners. They're not trained in the manner of front running. They're just trained. And getting into a rhythm and, and and building on it and being so genuine and so tough that I believe, like I think, it'd be every jockey's dream just to ride them kind of horses. That's interesting because when when we when we started riding, when we spoke about getting instructions from trainers, I would have put Johnston in the category of he must be in telling the jockeys. And now you're saying he doesn't necessarily, that that's just the, the no, rhythm no, no, the no. horse finds. But it is interesting because in your, as from an outsider's perspective, I would have assumed anyone picking up a ride for him, he's telling them, you know, make the pace, be out front, trying to stretch the race. So it's, it's interesting. That was the name that almost instantly came to mind when you said you didn't like, you kind of difficult with trainers who had strong opinions on how the horses should be, should be raced. I think in I think as jockeys in for years, even for jockeys that haven't ridden from which I I definitely fall into that category. Um, 
we're all in awe on how, you know, the, it's hard to do things. In, it's, it's hard to do things simply. Like just very, to be very simple all the time is not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do, especially with horses. And like, I always find like, no matter his horses, no matter how big, how small, how anything, they always, you know, they always jump out, find a rhythm wherever they are. Franny doesn't necessarily make the running whenever he, do you know what I mean? He doesn't try and kill him to get to the front. You know what I mean? If he jumps out to go that way. If someone else wants to go quicker than him, that's, that's fine. But they always find a rhythm. But what gets me the most is how genuine they run to the line. Do you ever find like every last one of them put their head down and run to the line? Big, small, different breeds, it doesn't matter. Different trips, five furlong horses, doesn't matter. You never see one put its head up and back off the line. They always put their head down and run all the way to the line, no matter what. And I think like as, you know, the, give credit when credit's due. Like I think that is like, that is a huge thing as a trainer to be able to do. How do you get so many different types, breeds, trips, you know, so many different types of horses and get them to do the exact same thing. The exact, it's as if they all have the exact same um, characteristic towards the line. So, I, I mean, you, you mentioned Snow Lantern, who, um, you, you know, you were, you were on for second place at Royal Ascot in the Coronation Stakes. Um, that was another one that was 14 to one. And I kind of wanted to get your opinion. Is that another horse that you thought should not have been 14 to one that you were pretty confident on was going to definitely outrace its odds. No, she definitely shouldn't have been 14 to one. She, the only reason she was 14 to one, she would have been, she would have been near enough a favorite in the race only for she ran so bad in New York the time before in that listed race. You know, and that was, that was, that was fault of her own really. I thought inexperienced that day. She was a Frankel. I think everyone knows Frankel's attributes. He was a very forward going, very keen horse. I think um, Cecil used to always mention how his number one priority with the horse was to keep a lid on him. And she definitely has that attribute within herself. Um, her mother was completely the other way around. But one thing she had was absolute attitude. You know, I mean, you couldn't tell her to, you couldn't tell her to do anything. I mean, if you asked her, if you told her to do something, your the answer you get back was definitely no. You know, what I mean, you're always better off asking rather than telling. And um, she has both those attributes within herself. You know what I mean? So, and I think in your the day, she jumped out, settled out the gates, and they went slow, and I. I told her to slow down and she basically told me where to go. And um, as a result, you know, she ran very free and didn't quite finish the race, but she's a young filly. She was learning. And I'm pretty sure she come out of that race with a different point of view. Um, she trained a lot better after that. And we knew going into, going into Ascot that she'd definitely make a better, better account of herself. You know, it's, it's one of those things with horses you can never be 100% sure. It's not as if we sat down for a cup of tea and had a conversation about it. But, like, you're kind of going on the back of what she's doing at home anyway. And um, she was training well. But I thought, I think at the back of your head, you always have that last day in the back of your head. So you're thinking, like, you know, if she does that again, well, then we're screwed. And in this occasion, you know what I mean? She, Richard done such a great job with her. She jumped the gates and she settled. And 
it was a pity really because the ground it was do you know I mean of all the good days leading up to that day that was a day when the inspection was held the the stalls were moved 30 yards down the track they were moved to the other side of the track giving her ultimately one of the best draws and one of the worst draws and then going down and just and do you know I mean? she only got b half length but like gaining ground all the way to the line and I can't see how you turn around on the back of that and not be optimistic that she has only minor things to put together to beat the horse I th personally I think she only has minor things to put together to beat the horse that beat her last time yeah I think everything he says makes sense Sam as I said we don't want to hold you for too long Sean Sam you got a, a final question to throw out there um yeah, I got one. Um, do you have, in the same way that, you know, Eddie said about kind of a best horse or a horse you could ride, do you have like a course that you consider to be like your favorite course? And I guess in a similar vein, do you have a course that you think you have a lot of demons at and suddenly holds, you know, a lot of near misses, close seconds, pipped on the lines or anything like that I, I it could be anywhere in the world because i know you've written written in like the breeders cup right through to uk island france so um anywhere in the world have you got like a favorite and a worst course to write so um favorite course funny enough to ride is chester and it's nothing to do with the course in general it's just to do with the atmosphere that surrounds the course absolutely a great place to ride I do love, I used to do pony racing when, before, obviously, I signed on and done pony racing and, like, it's structured pretty much the same. Tight circuit, you know, plenty fast, have to be on the pace, you know what I mean? Just basically have to be on the ball all the time. I do appreciate that. and I, I just love riding that like that. And that, that course allows you to get away with that kind of way of riding. And But then, if you put in then the atmosphere and all that, Chester has always kind of been top of the list for me as far as... Uh, my fire's enjoying riding those. I haven't really got a track I can't ride, but I do tend to be against, and it's nothing to do with the track, it's got to do with the opportunities that, that you get each one in any given day. On a good horse, I would always prefer a good track where there's nowhere to hide. So, on a good horse, I'd always love Ascot, Newbury. Um, like to Haydock, Doncaster, things like that, right? On a bad horse, and if you tend to be in a situation where you're riding a lot of outsiders, whatever have you, then you need places where you can hide a little bit. And then that, that applies to the likes of Linkfield. Mostly tracks with bends on them, where you can judge a little bit more and hope for a little bit more. But like, favorite tracks to ride on good horses all the good tracks in the country, absolutely brilliant because there's nowhere to hide. There's no one, there's no hard luck stories. Best horse always wins. Newbury, Ascot, especially Ascot. Well, Ascot is where all green goes. Everyone, I think, they got the best horse in the world, but only one person walks away with a winner, right? I think I've rode a winner on every track in the country so far. Just horses for courses, right? It's not bad. That's not bad. I'm sure there's lots of uh, punters out there who haven't had winners at every every race track up there. So. <laughs> Weatherby. I don't think I wrote a winner. Weatherby. But I've only ever been there. Weatherby once. now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll be going back as well. That's miles away. <laughs> 
Sean, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. And it's been a, an extremely enjoyable conversation. And we, we'd love to have you back on in the future. But it was, it was great to hear about your, you know, your career and your thoughts on racing. It was, it was really enjoyable. Yeah, thank you so much. No. Yeah. Hopefully I wasn't too honest with it now and I'll have people get back at me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. It was it was a pleasure. And yeah. get home no, safely. No, and, I absolutely appreciate it, guys. And don't so don't much. have any don't have any don't have too many kebabs on the way home. Yeah. No, I was actually <laughs> looking at it there thinking, shall I shall I not? <laughs> I've gone against it. <laughs> Smart. You'll thank yourself in the morning. Yeah. True, true. All right. Thank you. Boys, thank, thank you very you. much. Cheers.